Well, as Christians who exist in the world, we each live and breathe and move in different contexts, in different settings, in different environments. And when we're in each of those different places, they are all marked, each of them, with different kinds of behavior. If you go to a place of work every day, there's a certain way that you act when you're there. There are usually standards for what you wear, for even for how you speak, even, and especially for how you conduct yourself. In many workplaces, there's an expectation of professionalism and a certain kind of decorum. You're acting as a representative of that business or of that institution or of that company. And you have to act in a way that properly ref- reflects that place of work. Now, if you're self-employed, it doesn't really matter, does it? But if, especially for those of you that are involved in, in, in a workplace setting. Compare that to when you're at home. Now, rather than always being aware of how you act, you can let your guard down a little bit. There are still expectations, but they're a little bit more relaxed. You can afford to be a little bit more casual in how you dress and in what you say. It's just a different environment. And that goes for all kinds of different contexts as well. For those of you that are students, there are different expectations at school than when you're at home. If you're at a sporting event, you conduct yourself in a certain way. Even within different sporting events, you have differing expectations on on how a spectator conducts themselves. For those going to the Eskimos game this afternoon, you can be loud and raucous at any point during that game. But if you're a fan at a golf tournament, or a tennis match, or even a curling match, for the most part, you have to be silent, especially when people are taking their shots, lining up for for that shot, or, or even during a tennis match, during the whole rally, you're expected to be silent. Or compare a football game to a ballet. As a spectator, there are different expectations for how you conduct yourself. You just act a certain way in one place and another way in a different context. Well, we could go on and on. There are all kinds of different settings or contexts or in our society, and we're called to and expected to live in a certain way in each of those settings. But as Christians, we are actually especially called into another setting. We have been called out of the world in a very real way to live within the context of the church. This calling, this being set apart, is for us an enormous privilege. Now, in some ways, as individual believers, we are always in that setting, wherever we are, as we move in and out of all those contexts that I talked about before, we are always representing Christ, even as at the same time we are an employee or an employer or a father or a mother or a husband or a wife or a spectator or a shopper or whatever it is. And we have to assume a kind of alien to the world behavior in those settings. But as believers, we've also been placed into that other context in which we live and move and have our being and that's the church, where we are right now. And in the setting, the people that we are with right now is actually those that make up the church. And we've also been given a manual for how to conduct ourselves in that context, and that's in the Bible. Especially when we go into the New Testament letters to the churches, there are no shortage of instructions on how to, as they put it in common day parlance now, how to do church. 
or how to do church life. And we find out that it's a, actually a radical, otherworldly kind of community that we have been placed into, which calls for radical and an otherworldly kind of conduct. But the one overarching principle of life in the context of the church is that everything must be centered on the person of Christ. All our cues for conduct are derived from the example of Jesus in his life and in his death. And everything we do actually flows out of our relationship with Jesus. The fact that we are inextricably united with him by faith. And when we gather together for worship, Everything, then, is directed to God through Jesus. So when it comes to our church life, we could say it's all about Jesus. We've been working our way through one of those New Testament letters, the letter called Hebrews. And right at the end of this letter, actually just before the end, the author is talking to this particular church and telling them that in the light of everything he's already written to them, about the glories and about the the, the supremacies of Jesus in comparison to everything else that they knew, it follows then that their church life ought also to be centered on Jesus. At the end of chapter 12 and verse 28, he writes, let us offer to God acceptable worship. And Pastor Andrew showed us last week from the beginning of chapter 13 what that looks like in terms of love and and hospitality and, and purity. And, and contentment, very practical instructions. Well, the author is still writing in that same vein as we pick it up now in verse 7 and following. And so I'm going to read um, Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 17. I originally thought I was going to go to verse 19, but I'm going to save that for next week or next time. But as I'm reading, I want you to pay attention how, to how everything, even all the structures and the people involved in church life, has to flow out of what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Did you see it? In verse 8, 
there's that awesome confession. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then down in verse 13, after talking about Jesus' suffering, it says, Therefore, because Jesus has suffered outside the camp, let us go to him outside the camp. Let, let's move toward Jesus. And then verse 15, through, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So everything we do as a church, our, our common confession, uh, our direction in, of our worship and our praise, has to all center on the person and the work of Jesus. That the rest of Hebrews has just very clearly explained to us. This coming week, we're going to start to focus on the, on the birth of Jesus as we have our uh, senior adults Christmas banquet. And, and then next Lord's Day, we're going to start our Advent season as we again play out the anticipated arrival of Jesus. And so the Christmas season is very obviously about Christ, but, but the adoration of Jesus Christ really has to permeate everything that we do. By definition, Christianity can never stray too far from Christ in our affections and in our devotion. And of course, as a church, we owe our very existence to Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. So it only flows then that all of our activity and all our conduct must then flow out of Christ, and our worship must flow toward God through Christ. Church life is marked by Christ-centered worship. And we can see that in at least three ways in this particular section at the almost end of this letter. Number one, church life is marked by worshipers who follow the kinds of leaders that point them to Christ. You might have noticed that the beginning and the end of this passage talks about church leaders. Verse 7 says, remember your leaders. And verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is just talking about the way that God has structured his church. And the clear testimony of the New Testament here and elsewhere is that God has gifted and and equipped certain people to lead the church. And some of those leadership positions are described in many other places, but, but here it just puts them all into one category of leaders. And in verse 7, it seems to be talking about the past leaders of that church. It says, remember your leaders who spoke past tense to you, not who are speaking to you, who spoke to you the word of God. And then it says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So it's saying to, to think back to those people who led you before. And here it tells us the kind of people that they're to remember. It's those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their out, the outcome of their way of life. Look at the result. Reflect on how they finished. So it could be referring here to leaders who have passed away already. Or just leaders in the past. But consider that and then imitate their faith. If you've been a Christian for a while now, who are the people who were influential to you? Especially those who spoke the word of God to you. And especially in the context of the local church. If you didn't grow up here at this church, who are the people that you can point back to that taught you in the word, that lived with integrity, and that kept the faith right through to the end? And if you grew up here at this church, you might point back to people like Pastor Gillett. Some of you might go even further back than that to some of the the, the men who came here from Prairie Bible Institute. 
and served as pastors for short periods. Pastor Gillett actually passed away the same weekend that I came here to candidate for this position, and so I never got to know him. But for many of you, he might be the one who spoke the word to you faithfully, week in, week out. And he spoke the word of God to you. He was, as he was doing that, he was slowly discipling you and pointing you to Jesus Christ. And he was faithful to the end in the way he lived. Remember a leader like that. Imitate his enduring faith. That's what this is telling you to do. For others, you might have come here a little later. It might be Pastor Ginter or Pastor Lytle or Pastor Wall. Many of us have been profoundly influenced by Pastor Wayne Wicks and his faithful Bible preaching in church or his teaching in Sunday school or even one-on-one. I know one of our elders, John Hurd, met weekly with Pastor Wayne when he first became a Christian. And John has told me often about how Pastor Wayne would just speak the word of God to him. For some of you, it might not be a pastor, but it might be elders or Sunday school teachers or, or Bible study leaders. It's saying, remember your leaders, and particularly those who spoke the word to you. But what are they to remember? Well, first of all, we have to say that these were all human leaders. They all had shortcomings. They, they weren't perfect. But they were faithful. Imitate their faith. Their faith in what? Well, look at the very next verse. It brings us back, actually, to the theme of this whole letter. You kind of, when I first read it, I go, how how is this connected? How is verse 8 connected to verse 7? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These leaders not only put their faith in Jesus, but they were also faithful in that their ministry and that the content of their teaching was centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And now, even though these leaders might be gone, Jesus remains the same. So, so that verse there focuses on Jesus' uh, unchangingness, his eternality. So we don't ultimately put our faith in human leaders who come and go. We imitate their faith, but we don't ultimately put our faith in them. We put our faith in the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Faithful church leaders point people, not to themselves, but to Jesus Christ. And true worshipers will follow those kinds of leaders and will imitate their Christ-centered faith. And that's important because of the next verse. Verse 9. Jesus is the same, so verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. When churches are not centered on Jesus Christ, the danger is that they can, get a let, they can get led away from him. And maybe into all sorts of secondary stuff, rituals, ceremonies, traditions, outward things. For, for these former Jews here in Hebrews, it was that whole system of food regulations and ceremonial duties that, that they started getting attracted to a little bit more again, and, and, and they were starting to get distracted away from the person of Jesus. For us... If we're not careful, we could get hung up on things like political issues, social issues, those kinds of things. All of those are important, but but we always have to see them through the lens of ministry that's focused on Jesus. We can never allow them to distract, and, and, and we can never distance ourselves from the one who ought to be at the center. Our religious landscape is filled these days with so-called churches 
that focused in the past on so-called social initiatives to the point that Jesus Christ is hardly ever mentioned. And if he is, it's a distorted Jesus that is only used to further their cause of accepting everybody and everything. Or, our religious landscape, especially in the nation to the south, is dotted with churches that are more known for their political alliances than they are from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, we need to be involved and aware and engaged in what's happening politically, definitely. But we have to remember this, that governments and government leaders do not, cannot bring about true spiritual transformation or reformation. Only Jesus can ultimately do that. And so when the church starts to center on those secondary kinds of things, we can get a let away from the unchanging Jesus by diverse and strange teachings rather than by the word of God that was spoken by the leaders of the past. And so let's commit to imitate their faith, which was centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 10 to 16, the writer um, sort of piggybacks on the strange and diverse teachings of the old Jewish system that tempted the original leaders of this letter. And he shows, secondly, how church life also has to be marked by worshipers that make sacrifices that are pleasing to God. This is the kind of worship that God finds acceptable. I like the picture there that he paints at the end of verse 9. Don't be led away by strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. He's saying there, if you want to get nourished in preparation for worship, then eat up the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He's telling these Jews that worship isn't about food regulations and those kinds of things. That, that's a dead end. That's all over. It's done away with. It's rather now, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That's the kind of nourishment that you should take in. And then verse 10, this simple, simple emphatic statement, we have an altar. Now he's getting into the whole concept of sacrifices pictures, the whole Old Testament system where they brought the blood on the altar in worship. The Old Testament people of God had a God-prescribed way to deal with sin and it involved a tent, a tabernacle, and animals, and blood, and a high priest. But the whole point of Hebrews is that all of those things pointed ahead to a better sacrifice. And all those things have now been superseded by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. But when he says, we have an altar... It looks like he's saying that even now, after the sacrifice of Jesus, we as New Testament kind of worshipers can still make sacrifices. Could it be that we still have a sacrificial system of sorts? Could it be that we as New Testament believers and worshipers can make sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to God? Well, let's see what it says here. In verses 11 and 12, he brings up the fact that just like the bodies of animals were brought outside the camp to be burned, and remember here the picture, the blood of the animals was brought in, and then the bodies were taken out of the camp. They were seen as unclean, full of sin, and they were discarded, burned actually, outside the camp. And it's saying, so Jesus was taken outside of Jerusalem. There's a connection there, where he suffered. But the difference is, he suffered in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Then verse 13, therefore, because of what Christ accomplished for us through his 
body, through his death, through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach, the shame that he endured. This is a a precious truth and a a radical um, lay-it-all-down call to identify with and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The precious truth is that we have been sanctified, we have been cleansed by his blood. We've been not only cleansed, but we've been set apart, we've been separated from the world. And and we've been joined to Jesus. So, So let us go to him where he is, outside the camp even if it means bearing the reproach that he endured. Being outside was a sign of rejection and shame, but only from the world's perspective. From a spiritual perspective, there's nothing as honorable as bearing the reproach, the shame of Christ. It just turns it all on its head, doesn't it? There's nothing as honorable as bearing the shame of Christ. Remember Moses in chapter 11, verse 26, says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Everything the world offered was nothing in comparison to the reproach of Christ, the shame of Christ. You might think, I'm not sure I really signed up for that when I became a Christian. But this is just what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus. Matthew 10, 38, Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that may make it, might make it sound like a hard and difficult road. And the reality is that it is in this life. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. But just remember, especially chapter 12 of Hebrews, it's, it all ends in joy. Look to Jesus, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame. Don't let the fear of rejection, as hard and as, uh, as isolating as it might be, don't let that deter you from following hard after Jesus. Let us go to him outside the camp. Let us go to him outside of the in crowd. Let us go to him outside of the opinions and philosophies of this world. Let us go to him outside popular culture, outside popular music, outside popular trends. Why? Verse 14, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In the words of Augustine, we desire the city of God, not the city of man. We have an altar. I think that's just talking about the, the entire work of Jesus Christ. We've been sanctified, we've been set apart, we've been separated so that we can go to Jesus outside the camp. And verse 15, still thinking about that altar where sacrifices are made, look at verse 15. Through him then, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for Listen now, listen. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so the whole Old Testament sacrificial system has been completed, it's been realized, it's been superseded by Christ. 
But the people of God, it's saying here, can still make sacrifices. What do they look like? Well, you see them there. Praise is a sacrifice. Doing good is a sacrifice. Share what you have. And it has to be through Christ. It's centered on Christ and flows out of Christ. Through him then, let us continually offer. And here's what our Christ-centered sacrifices look like. Praise is called a sacrifice. This is what we do collectively when we gather on Sunday mornings. We often sing a song. Um, We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. We praise and worship with lips that acknowledge his name. That's our sacrificial system. And we don't neglect to do good. We, we share what we have for such sacrifices. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is just church life, isn't it? We don't sacrifice animals and all that stuff, but there are some sacrifices left for us. And, we, and they flow upward in praise. And then they flow outward in doing good and in sharing. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Touched on that in the, in the passage last week in verse 2. Hebrews or Philippians 4, 18. Um, Paul talks about receiving this gift from the church through Epaphroditus. He says, Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, and he calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. As Christ-centered worshipers who want to please God, we collectively praise God with our lips. Ephesians 5.19 says, we, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we address one another. And then it says, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And then we also look outside ourselves as we care for each other, and even those in our community with things like the outreach that we're doing in, in a month from now. Do good. Share what you have. That all comes from Jesus as well. That's what he did for us, isn't it? To the max. How could we do any less? These are the kinds of sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And then in verse 17, he goes back to the leaders. Only now he talks about uh, their present leaders. He says, church life is to be marked by worshipers that submit to leaders that watch over us. Now, I've talked about this verse in a number of other contexts, membership, those sort of things, um, before, so I'm not going to go into it very much. But it's also a hard verse to preach because it sounds like it's self-serving. And that I need to tell you to obey me and submit to me, or to the elders. But that's exactly what this says, doesn't it? It says that God has created his church with authority structures. He just has. And it's really just saying that if we would just follow God's design for the church, it'll go well for everyone. Did you catch that? For leaders, it says that even though there's great responsibility, that they will have to give account, there's also joy to be had. And for those who are being led, it says a number of things. It says that you have people who are actually charged with watching over your souls. Isn't that great? And it says that if you let them do their work joyfully... The implication here is that it will be of advantage to you. Church leaders actually represent God. Now again, they do that very imperfectly. And they don't have, um, this needs to be said too, they don't have unbridled 
or, or unchecked power. You are only required to obey and submit only as long as they teach the gospel and as they lead in a gospel-minded, humble way. And for their part, they'll need to give an account of their leadership. But that being said, and with those caveats in place, you can joyfully obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls. Souls. That means that they keep watch, not just that things go well for you on this earth. They're, they're concerned for your soul, for that which lasts into eternity. They don't want you just to be happy now. They want you to be happy forever in the presence of God. So it says to let them do this, let them lead with joy. In 3 John, verse 4, the Apostle John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. That's our hope for all of you as leaders. We want to see you following Jesus and growing in your relationship to God. We want to see you bearing fruit for his kingdom. That's, what, that, that's really what makes leaders joyful, full of joy. So that's what church life ought to look like. As, as we exist together for God's glory until he comes again, Let's focus on the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's, let's center our lives individually and together as a church on him. And as we do that, let's remember the leaders of the past and imitate their faith, their enduring faith in Christ. Let us go to Jesus outside the camp and be willing to bear the reproach that he endured. Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. That ought to mark our life of the church, continually offering sacrifices of praise. What are they? Praising God, worshiping Him, doing good, and sharing. And then let us submit and obey those that God has put into the position of leadership over us. For their joy, for our benefit, and for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Christ-centered church life. Let's pray that God would help us to live that way here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful again for these practical instructions from your word. Lord, there's much of Hebrews because we're not Jewish that was, um, and we don't have that background that was difficult to interpret and to apply for our lives, but these instructions are so very practical for us. We thank you that we are not left to decide on our own how the church ought to function. And we can freely admit that that would surely be chaotic. But you have told us that you want us to center all of our worship and all of our activity around the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we ask that you would give us the courage to go to him outside the camp, and help us to worship you and to offer our sacrifices to you. Just as you have told us to, with our lips, by doing good, by sharing what you have done, and by obeying our godly leaders. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.